from Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. For the hour, a celebration of the 30th anniversary of Ambrose Eileen's radio series, Never Again for White Men Only. South Carolina, for all intents and purposes, was a full-blown fascist state long before America became a nation officially. Historians call what happened in 1906 the Atlanta race riot. But it was in fact a white racist rampage of slaughter and arson through Atlanta's defenseless black community. Like Hitler and like Goebbels, their only standard for judgment is success. If the propaganda succeeds, what does it matter to them that what they have said is a lie? Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averm. Now, the January 6th committee released its final report late Thursday night. In more than 800 pages, it points the finger directly at former President Donald Trump as being the central cause of the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. The rampage, which temporarily stopped certification of the 2020 presidential election, left at least seven people dead and dozens more injured. Committee Chair Representative Benny Thompson writes in the foreword of the report, quote, our country has come too far to allow a defeated president to turn himself into a successful tyrant by upending our democratic institutions, end quote. One section of the report that did not figure prominently in the public hearings of the committee details the failure of the well-funded federal law enforcement apparatus, including the FBI and Department of Homeland Security, to prepare for and or prevent the attack, despite weeks of serious threats and warnings about armed groups planning to descend on D.C. that day. While Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed a joint session of Congress Wednesday night, asking for and apparently set to receive billions more in aid for the NATO proxy war against Russia in his country, anti-war activists, including from the Answer Coalition, protested outside. Speakers said that the current threat stems from the U.S. placing offensive weapons at Russia's doorstep. This is Kathy Boylan, a member of the Dorothy Day Catholic Worker. This is truly the Cuban Missile Crisis in reverse. I say to the people who work at the Pentagon every Monday morning, would we like it if Russia put their nuclear weapons in Canada and Mexico? Of course we wouldn't. We have threatened and provoked Russia for years. This is not, you know, just happened this year. This has been going on for years. We must demand not just Ukraine, not just whatever, demand that the United States remove their nuclear weapons and the threat of nuclear war from Russia and from the world. But we're right on Russia's border. Though Zelensky left the U.S. with nearly two billion more in weapons and military equipment and a promise of 50 billion more next year, Russian officials said in response that the new weapons systems are legitimate targets and will only prolong the conflict and the destruction of Ukraine. Zelensky arrived in Washington as leaders from Africa departed after a three-day summit sponsored by the Biden administration. Lydia Curtis has more. The U.S.-Africa summit wrapped up on December 15th in Washington, D.C., amidst a wide range of demonstrations and alternative meetings hosted by groups who oppose Western control of Africa and its resources. Speakers contend the Biden summit was really a U.S. attempt to counter the greater economic partnership that China has on the African continent. The four-day summit, the first of its kind since 2014, was described as being designed to foster economic opportunities and reinforce the United States' alleged commitment to human rights and democracy. However, the summit comes amid dim relations between the United States and many African countries, 
some of which have criticized Western financial and arms support for the NATO proxy war against Russia in Ukraine. Western sanctions against Russia have caused price spikes in wheat, with 345 million people in the world expected to experience acute food insecurity. Several African countries rely on Russia and Ukraine for large portions of their wheat imports and are being threatened with sanctions if they continue their business relationship with those countries. The Black Alliance for Peace hosted a week of anti-imperialist actions, including picketing the summit venue and a people's intervention at Howard University to raise issues regarding military bases and other forms of U.S. interference in Africa. Kari Gifa, Mid-Atlantic Coordinator of the Alliance, gave context for the summit at a press conference held at the Institute for Policy Studies. The Black Alliance for Peace sees the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit that took place in Washington, D.C. from December 13th through the 15th as collusion between the United States, the world's leading neocolonial power, and the African leaders who serve as their junior partners and agents. They met to advance and maintain U.S. dominance over Africa. We have participated in a number of events and programs organized by ourselves and others to counter the claims that this summit is, the best in, is in the best interest of Africa. We have noted that African countries like Eritrea and Zimbabwe were not invited because they opposed U.S. foreign policy on Africa and chose instead to pursue an independent road to development, peace, and security. We have concluded that the United States has no honorable, helpful plans for Africa. The U.S.-African Leaders Summit was clearly set up to obscure the real role, the real U.S. role in Africa and give legitimacy to the continuing U.S. plunder of African resources, exploitation of African people, and military domination of the African continent. To hear the entire 50-minute press conference, go to the Black Alliance for Peace Facebook page or the Pan-African Community Action Facebook page. For On the Ground, this is Lydia Curtis. In Black Lives Matter news, for the first time, an on-duty D.C. Metropolitan Police Department officer has been convicted of murder. On Wednesday, December 21st, Terrence Sutton was found guilty of second-degree murder, conspiracy, and obstructing justice in the death of 20-year-old Karan Hilton Brown during October 2020. Hilton Brown was on a rented moped when Sutton chased him in a police patrol car in a reckless fashion, leading the moped to crash and Hilton Brown sustaining fatal head injuries. Sutton's partner, Andrew Zabowski, was also convicted of conspiracy and obstructing justice in what authorities said was an attempt to cover up the chase and crash. After the verdict, Hilton Brown's mother, Karen Hilton, was ejected from the courtroom and dragged away in handcuffs as she reportedly cursed loudly at the police just convicted in her son's death. In Louisiana, five law enforcement officers have been charged in connection with the death of Ronald Green, who was beaten and tased after a traffic stop in 2019. Then police lied about the incident, telling his family that Green died in a car crash. Details of the brutal attack on Green were only revealed after video of the incident was released two years after his death. On Monday, December 19th, the northeast entrance of New York Central Park was renamed the Gate of the Exonerated in honor of five boys known as the Central Park Five who were wrongly convicted of raping and beating a jogger in Central Park during 1989. At the time, Donald Trump purchased a full-page ad in the New York Times calling for a reinstatement of the death penalty in connection with the case. In 2002, the actual rapist confessed to the crime and was linked to it by DNA evidence. While the Central Park Five were all teenagers at the time of the attack in 1989, they were 28 to 30 years old when they were exonerated and all had completed prison terms of 7 to 13 years. And finally, in culture and media, as more studies are being published pointing to the dangers of irreversible tipping points, 
in the climate crisis, the Institute for Policy Studies here in D.C. sponsored two recent panels on what world institutions are doing and not doing to avert catastrophe. Chantal James has more. As we look to preserving the future of life on Earth by combating the growing and present threat of climate change, the Institute for Policy Studies convened a panel to discuss the question of what institutions are required globally to address the problem of climate change. Panelist Jayati Ghosh, a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, expands our notion of what imperialism means when we talk about it as a threat to the climate. But the second challenge is imperialism. And that I do not mean to uh, refer only to power imbalances between countries. I don't think that is a good definition. For me, imperialism is the struggle of large capital over economic territories when it is supported by their nation states. And we see evidence of that in many of the things that have been described already, whether it is the continued subsidies to fossil fuels, or it is the greenwashing that Miriam mentioned of so-called ESG investments, environmental, social, and governance investments, or a whole range of other aspects. We find that the ability of large capital to sway international policies and national policies in its own interest persists unabated. And that's really a major, major constraint to doing anything serious about climate change. Miriam Lang, a professor for environmental and sustainability studies at the Universidad Andina Simon Bolivar in Ecuador, moderated, and the panel was simultaneously broadcast in Spanish. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. The journalist, author, and social justice activist Ambrose Eileen Sr. hosted shows including We Ourselves for decades on WPFW and other Pacifica stations before his death in 2010. And we are celebrating the 30th anniversary of his 1992 opus series, Never Again for White Men Only. The series includes eight shows and nearly eight hours of Ambrose documenting how chattel slavery followed by a century of fascist Jim Crow apartheid not only impacted African-Americans, but was also central to building a society that utilizes racism and white supremacy to serve the U.S. oligarchy. And the thing about this epic series is that it's not just about history. In fact, it amply illustrates what Amiri Baraka called the changing same. As Ambrose describes the dangers of a right-wing extremist Supreme Court or the attack on voting rights or the continued use of state propaganda to dupe Americans into supporting another war and scapegoating people of color, he could be talking about today in 2022. Now we'll begin some excerpts from Ambrose Eileen Sr.'s epic 1992 series, Never Again for White Men Only. America, never again for white males only. I am Ambrose Lane, the author. In my book, Your Inherent Superiority Can Even Beat a Stacked Deck, I began the third chapter with a quote by James McClellan, who was the former staff director and chief counsel of the United States Senate Subcommittee on Separation of Powers. McClellan's words were chilling and stupid for anyone occupying such an important position in our government. These are his words, and the following are what I wrote about them in part. McClellan wrote, Strange as it may sound today, the First Amendment, although it was a guarantee to the individual that the Congress could not establish a national religion, was at the same time a guarantee to the states that they could, if they desired, establish a state religion. Similarly, the Eighth Amendment, wrote McClellan, while it protected the individual against cruel and unusual punishments inflicted by the federal government, was also a guarantee to the states 
that they could mete out punishment as they saw fit. As a matter of law, then, wrote McClellan, the Bill of Rights could be construed as a guarantee to the states that they were free to deny civil liberties to their citizens, to deny them the free exercise of religion, to forbid freedom of speech and press, to inflict cruel and unusual punishments, to deprive them of life, liberty, and property without due process of law. So said Mr. McClellan. As the Ronald Reagan-George Bush presidency unfolded, the dictatorial and fascistic bent of many of those brought into government by him became increasingly clear. The twisted thinking of McClellan that I just cited is not simply his mental aberration. It was and is an article of faith for myriad Reagan supporters in and out of government. The point he and they made clear for anyone who refused to hide from the truth was this. If they had the power, they would scrap the Bill of Rights. These crazies want to rewrite the Constitution in order to make it clear that only the fat cats have any legal or constitutional power and any rights, and the great unwashed, that's all the rest of us, be damned. These crazies are not, repeat, not principally concerned about black and white. They would strip the protections in the Bill of Rights from white Americans as well as from blacks. Most of them are frightened people, scared to death by rapid and emotionally overwhelming changes in the social and economic equation in this country. As they see others advance, especially minority and so-called undeserving poor others, they see themselves go back. And for poor and newly minted middle class that is economically insecure white males, whose only tattered security blanket was the lack of melanin in their skin, that is their whiteness, this new America is especially traumatic. Now, in 1992, they find themselves completely naked. They not only have to compete with their own women and American blacks, male and female, their own white male-run government has brought in tens of thousands of Vietnamese and Koreans and Cubans and somehow can't seem to be able to keep the borders closed to Mexicans and other what they call strange-speaking folks from Central and South America. To these economically insecure white males, everything has gotten out of hand. All they thought America stood for is out of kilter. And to add to their misery, the Japs, that's right, Japs, they don't call them Japanese, are kicking their asses economically worldwide and buying up what they're told are treasured assets here at home. Now, to these white American males, the enemy is within the gates. And who is this enemy? Well, deep down in their consciousness, in their heart of hearts, as Goldwater Wrights used to say, they know that the real enemy within the gates is a group or more accurately several small groups of powerful, rich, white, mostly old and middle-class males making money off their pain and misery and off the pain and misery of their less affluent fellow Americans. These people are America's real invisible men, these white male power brokers. They are perceived to be exceedingly powerful and ruthless. They control vast wealth and worldwide corporations richer and more powerful than most governments. 
and they buy and sell politicians as easily as their less powerful brethren buy cheap street corner whores or not so cheap call girls. If they decide a war is needed to protect or increase their wealth, their bought and paid for politicians will arrange a war and send not so powerful black and Hispanic and poorer white Americans to be maimed and killed on foreign shores, all for God and country. That's what the politicians tell them. And they, the victims, repeat that lie with patriotic fervor. Now, most economically insecure middle class and poor white males know these things, even though the knowing scares the hell out of them and gets buried by them deep in their consciousness. They bury the knowing because they perceive it as too dangerous to even think such thoughts. Knowing the real enemy and knowing their own moral and political cowardice at the same time, even though both knowings are often buried in their consciousness, frequently produce painful inner turmoil and guilt. To assuage the guilt and resolve the turmoil, a safer enemy within the gates must be openly chosen and publicly attacked. How better to disprove their own cowardice? That enemy is even safer to attack if the oligarchies, that is the ruling class's agents, approve, especially if that approval includes supplying some money to the cause. These fellows have one great virtue, and that great virtue is thoughtless obedience. Like lap dogs, they wiggle their tails when patted on the head or viciously attack, for example, liberals when their masters, the ruling class, say, sick em, boy. Today, white American males continue in a panic. They're victims of every propaganda ploy the ruling class's money can buy. Buzzwords have been invented for them. They know that they are buzzwords. You know what I mean. Words and phrases like reverse discrimination, quotas, and our favorite obscenity currently employed that phrase, political correctness. Hitler's propagandist Joseph Goebbels would have been proud of his American homegrown racist and fascist clones. They do him and Hitler proud. As Goebbels himself once said, no one can say your propaganda is too crude, too common, or too brutal or not decent enough, because propaganda is not to be judged by such standards. Propaganda should not be decent, neither should it be gentle or soft or mild. It should lead to success, so said Mr. Goebbels. Indeed, as we are beset by so much propaganda and so much misinformation on a daily basis from corporate media, I'm sure many of us have, have thought that, yes, Goebbels would be proud of the way that information is used and misused, not only by the state, but by their minions and corporate media to continually dupe the public into whatever the mass narrative that they, they would like to promote. And so that was the voice of journalist and author Ambrose Eileen Sr., who hosted the show We Ourselves on WPFW and other Pacifica stations before his death in 2010. And we're celebrating the content you just heard, his 1992 series you're hearing, Never Again for White Men Only. And every time I hear the series, I hear something new. And uh, that piece started with his discussing what is generally discussed 
described as states' rights, how these right-wing forces really thought that states had all this power and that the federal government maybe did not, but the states had power. And it makes me think of so much that we're dealing with right now. If you look at the case of Moore v. Harper, and the Supreme Court is actually considering whether state legislatures have a right to appoint their own electors in federal elections, that they the only state legislatures have a right to make rules in their state about federal elections. And that means overruling the state Supreme Court, the governor, any special election commissions that are trying to create rules during a pandemic, you know, (laughs) that they themselves, these state legislatures only have the sole supreme right. And so this is a very dangerous, but the point is that it reminds me of so much of what Ambrose Eileen Sr. was pointing out three decades ago about these really extremist right-wing views and how they are just put out there and actually followed by so many in their community. And also he ridicules what at that time, I remember that whole political correctness thing. And, and in many ways, it's still out here as a part of the lingo. But now they've attempted to use our language about being woke, which means being conscious and turn it into a slur, you know, a woke culture, wokeness and really ridiculing people who are educating, we're educating ourselves, we're becoming more conscious of not only what's happening in this country, but around the world and the connections we have with other working people around the world and other struggles around the world. And they are ridiculing that and calling it woke culture or whatever. And, you know, perhaps it has other connotations, but we know the root of it. We know the root of it comes from our culture talking about consciousness. Let's go back to the next piece from Ambrose Eileen Sr., Never Again for White Men Only. In 1904, Tom Watson of Georgia offered his support and that of the populist to any anti-machine Democratic candidate who promised to change Georgia's constitution to provide white supremacy in that state. And the platform of Hokie Smith, the man who who eventually supported, advocated just that, and I quote, the elimination of the Negro from politics by legal and constitutional methods without disfranchising a single white man, end of quote. The aftermath of that successful campaign, resulting in an overwhelming vote for Hokie Smith, was the Atlanta race riot two years later. Every Georgia newspaper editorial writer, it seemed, joined Watson and Smith and the Democratic Party in poisoning the political air with racial hate. As an example, the Atlanta Journal, considered one of the milder newspapers in the state of Georgia, published these words in bold-faced capital letters, and I quote, He grows more bumptious on the street, more impudent in his dealings with white men. And then, when he cannot achieve social equality as he wishes, with the instinct of the barbarian to destroy what he cannot attain to, he lies in wait, as the dastardly brute did yesterday near this city, and assaults the fair young girlhood of the South. It is time for those who know the perils of the Negro problem to stand together with deep resolve that political power shall never give the Negro encouragement. Historians call what happened in 1906 the Atlanta race riot. But it was, in fact, a white racist rampage of slaughter and arson through Atlanta's defenseless black community. 
In C. Van Woodward's own words, those four days of white racist terrorism witnessed, and I quote, innocent black men and women being hunted by packs of white men and shot down in the streets of the city. Destruction, looting, robbery, murder, and unspeakable brutality went unrestrained. Watson also went unrestrained. Racism, you see, seldom travels alone. It usually takes religious or gender bigotry, or both, as companions. In the several publications that he owned or edited, Watson's bigotry embraced religion as well as race. In one of his publications, he wrote a 27-month series entitled The Roman Catholic Hierarchy, the deadliest menace to our liberties and our civilization. Other anti-Catholic articles carried equally provocative titles, such as, quote, how the confessional is used by priests to ruin women. Another, the, senator, <laughs> the sinister portent of Negro priests. Another, one of the priests who raped a Catholic woman in a Catholic church. Jews also felt the poison of Watson's sick pen. The trial of Leo Frank, a northern Jewish businessman for the murder of Mary Fagan, a 14-year-old white girl, gave Watson a rich mother load to exploit his Jewish bigotry. When Frank's death sentence was commuted by Georgia's outgoing governor, John M. Slayton, Watson's long-running outrage written in every issue of the Jeffersonian for more than a year, produced mob violence throughout the state of Georgia. An assassination attempt was made on Georgia's Governor Slayton at the inaugural ceremony for the incoming governor, and a mob estimated at 5,000 persons armed with, and I quote from a publication, revolvers, knives and dirks, saws and hatchets, with some modern guns and pistols and a large basket of dynamite sticks, marched on Slayton's home, forcing him into exile out of the state of Georgia. For two months after the commutation, the Jeffersonian screamed with Watson's outrage. I quote, Our grand old empire state has been raped, Watson wrote. And to the Jewish lawyers who defended Frank, Watson warned in these words, You have blown the breath of life into the monster of race hatred, and this Frankenstein, whom you created at such enormous expense, will hunt you down. On August 16th of that year, Frank was taken out of the state prison, driven almost 175 miles across the state of Georgia, and hanged near Marietta. Four days earlier, Watson's paper had warned in these words, all capital letters, the next Jew who does what Frank did is going to get exactly the same thing that we give to Negroes. And after the lynching, Watson wrote these words, in putting the sodomite murderer to death, the Vigilance Committee had done what the sheriff would have done if Slayton had not been of the same mold as Benedict Arnold. Let Jew libertines take notice. Georgia is not for sale to rich criminals, end of quotation. And in defense of lynching, Watson wrote these words, all bold letters. The voice of the people is the voice of God. But Watson's anti-Jewish, anti-Frank vituperations were profitable as well as vile. The circulation of his publication, The Jeffersonian, exploded from only 25,000 at the beginning of his Frank outrages to a total circulation of 87,000 two weeks after Frank's lynching, a tripling of his readers. Although Watson's bigotry encompassed Catholics and Jews, his most consistent targets were blacks. 
Negroes, he wrote, quote, have no comprehension of virtue, honesty, truth, gratitude, and principle. He staunchly defended the abuse of blacks. He wrote, in the South, we have to lynch him occasionally and flog him now and then to keep him from blaspheming the Almighty by his conduct on account of his smell and his color. His writings on blacks were so consistently scurrilous, it almost seems as if he felt the need to do penance for his earlier advocacy of racial unity and racial political equality. He would die a personal racist and religious bigot by word and deed, and an advocate for other racists and religious bigots also by word and deed. C. Van Woodward reports that during the summer of Watson's scathing attacks on Frank and Jews, during which Watson suggested that, quote, another Ku Klux Klan may be organized to restore home rule, end of quote, a ceremony inaugurating a new Klan was in fact conducted on the bald top of Stone Mountain. Even Woodward had to conclude and I quote, if any mortal man may be credited, as no one man may rightly be, with releasing the forces of human malice and ignorance and prejudice which the Klan merely mobilized, that man was Thomas E. Watson, end of quotation. So those are the words, and that is the voice of Ambrose Eileen Sr., longtime Pacifica producer, show host, journalist, and uh, we are playing uh, excerpts of his 1992 series, Never Again for White Men Only. And in that piece, that last piece, you know, he asks the serious question, you know, the, he says the question before us and before people in the United States, and it was true in 1992 when he recorded it, and it's true now, is How do you balance 400 years of preferential treatment for white men against, at that point, just 27 years of some greater access to the vote, to civil rights for African-Americans and other people of color? And so that question is still being asked. You know, there are some people who said that we were in a post-racial society, but we know that's not true. And talked about the propaganda for anti-Black hate. And I think that is so interesting because even after the uprising of 2020, you see how people are already trying to rewrite history, that George Floyd was not killed by Derek Chauvin, that he died of an overdose, and that the protesters were violent and and set fires and had riots all over the country. When we know that the the uprising, this massive, powerful grassroots uprising that that shook the whole globe was largely peaceful, that in many demonstrations, it was the police that started the violence, that set off tear gas, that started beating people, that in some cases uh, went into to crowds with their cars, that encouraged that type of violence against the protesters, encouraged the type of violence that we saw actually injure and even kill people just standing up for the right to not be killed by the police and by state violence. So it's very important what he's talking about in terms of propaganda and how even today it's used to whip up anti-Black hate, the attack on critical race theory, the attack on real history, like just to teach history about the history of slavery and genocide in this country. So this kind of material, people want to take it away from us. They want to hide it. They want to disappear it so that we don't have access to the truth. Now we're going to go back and hear another section from Ambrose Eileen Sr. Never again for white men only.
descendants of Africans were by law and custom excluded from the fruits of America's progress. Southern and northern factory jobs became, in fact, the exclusive domain of white males except during wartime. During this period of America's history, from 1896 to the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voters' Rights Act of 1965, almost every job that paid decent wages was exclusively reserved for white males. An entire structure was developed that reserved certain more highly compensated jobs for males, and the males hired were, as the Ivory Soap ad said, 99 and 44, 100% white. A similar structure was created for lesser-paying jobs that were exclusively occupied by females, and almost every such position was held by white females. While these exclusive jobs created by American progress that was itself built upon the wealth created by the slave trade and its attendant free labor were structured for whites only, the other part of the Confederate dream Cash wrote about was put in place. Only menial, domestic servant and stoop labor jobs were available to the masses of African descendants. Some professional positions were made available as limited opportunities because, and only because, those limited positions supported the system of apartheid, such positions as teachers, doctors, and clergy. White Americans consistently demonstrate short or convenient memories. Today, as this 20th century rushes to a close, white America's right-wing fascist-leaning leadership has developed an extensive industry of think tanks and publications and media propagandists, and they're all telling the same lies. Today, history is being rewritten as ruling class money is paying more and more of our schools and institutions to propagandize the public with those lies. The current prostitutes for the ruling class are promoting the clever straw man called political correctness. Propaganda was not always so blatant, and such a large percentage of American academics were not such outrageous prostitutes. In even the recent past, more academics at least tried to publish the truth. For example, Robert B. McKay, former dean of the New York University School of Law, in an article entitled Racial Discrimination in the Electoral Process, published in the May 1973 Journal of the American Academy of Political and Social Science, traced our sordid history of denial of the vote to African Americans. The opening sentence of that article mints no words. McKay wrote, Of all the discriminations endured by black citizens of the United States, none has more fully reveal the intent of the white majority to suppress the black minority than the pervasive and long-enduring efforts to limit access to the ballot. Without even the thin pretense of separate but equal facilities that long sustained the practice of segregation, racially discriminatory denial of the right to vote has no purpose but to limit control of government to the favored class, in the quotation. In his excellent review of this history of official machinations to keep African Americans from voting, McKay reminds his readers that when the Constitution was ratified, not more than a quarter of the adult white males were entitled to vote, and that when the Constitution was approved and the states were authorized to fix qualifications of voters, it was entirely clear that in most states, this meant restriction of the franchise to a handful of property owners. It was not until well into the 19th century that property qualifications were largely removed. McKay also reminds us that until ratification of the 17th Amendment in 1913, United States senators were elected by state legislatures rather than by popular election of all the people. After the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were ratified, the all-white male legislatures of the South passed laws to keep African Americans from ever voting. Those laws never applied to any other people in this country. McKay writes, and I quote, 
all of the original Confederate states adopted the poll tax and seven enacted revisions of the so-called Mississippi Solution in which reliance was placed on poll taxes, literacy and understanding tests, and residency requirements designed to assure disfranchisement of black voters. The other white primaries, the other principal instrument, that is, of disfranchisement was the white primary. By 1915, white primaries controlled access to the ballot in all southern states. McKay then quotes C. Van Woodward's statement in his book entitled The Strange Career of Jim Crow to the effect that, and I quote, if the Negroes did learn to read or acquire sufficient property and remember to pay the poll tax and to keep the receipt on file, they could even then be tripped by the final hurdle devised for them, the white primary. McKay says, and I quote, the white primary was not invalidated until 1944 and redistricting to deny voting participation was not forbidden by the courts until 1960. And the literacy tests were not finally eliminated until the Voting Rights Amendments of 1970 barred the use of such tests in all elections, state and national, for a five-year period on a congressional finding that literacy tests had been used to discriminate against voters on account of their color in violation of the 14th and 15th Amendments. The poll taxes, according to McKay, proved similarly difficult to challenge. And when it at last fell in 1966, the invalidation was because the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment was violated by a provision in the Virginia law that made the affluence of the voter or payment of any fee an electoral standard. Ultimately, the 24th Amendment was adopted to proscribe the poll tax in all federal elections, and by 1966, all but four states had abolished the poll tax in state election. Other legal ploys enacted and used by all white male state legislatures to deny African Americans the vote included the infamous grandfather clauses in most southern state laws. The principal purpose for these clauses was to exempt illiterate white males from the literacy test. All an illiterate white male had to do was show that his grandfather had the right to vote. If granddad did, then grandson could too, whether or not the grandson could read or write, while almost all African Americans were excluded because their grandfathers were non-voters. The grandfather clause was finally struck down by the Supreme Court in 1915. One more legal device to deny African Americans the vote should be mentioned. That's the interpretation test. The all-white male legislatures devised this gimmick to use when all else failed, when African Americans surmounted every other barrier. Louisiana wrote it into their constitution in 1921, after the grandfather clause was struck down, and used it extensively in the 1950s after white primaries were struck down by the court. And according to McKay, in 1960, the Louisiana state constitution was amended to require an applicant who applied to register to vote to be able to understand and give a reasonable interpretation of any provision of the Louisiana or United States Constitution. The federal district court used rather blunt language in striking down this amendment, saying it was a wall, and I quote, built to bar Negroes from access to the franchise, and it must come down. The test, the court said, is a sophisticated scheme to disfranchise Negroes. The test is unconstitutional as written and administered. And the United States Supreme Court agreed with Justice Hugo Black writing the opinion that this is not a test but a trap sufficient to stop even the most brilliant man on his way to the voting booth. The cherished right of people in a country like ours to vote cannot be obliterated by the use of laws like this, which leave the voting fate of a citizen to the passing whim or impulse of an individual voting registrar. That opinion was rendered in 1965, almost 100 years after the Civil War and the ratification of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution in 1868. 
That's more from Ambrose Eileen Sr.'s Never Again for White Men Only. This is a 1992 series, epic series that he, he produced for Pacifica. It's so important for us to preserve our history and our heritage and our culture because so many people are trying to bury it. They're trying to make it illegal to even talk about the true history. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. We're on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Averam. Our website and archive on all of our shows is onthegroundshow.org. In addition, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and I also link to every show on my Instagram page at Esther underscore Averam. Special thank you to our supporters on patreon.com at On the Ground Show. Our theme music for the show is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. Okay, I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. Here in the last month of the year, I want to especially thank our Patreon supporters at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show for your support. If you would like to support the show, if you rely on it, love the show, but you haven't yet signed up, please go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show to sign up to be a subscriber for as little as $3 a month. You can also do a one-time donation there and donations there as well as on PayPal or any other way you give are all tax deductible. We are not-for-profit organization, totally grassroots, independent funded. I'm not paid by any station or Pacifica or anybody. And so we really do rely on your support to produce the show. And also people who do year-end giving, Again, your donations are tax deductible and um, you can go to the website on the org for all the ways you can give on PayPal, the address if you want to send a check. And so just giving that push during December to uh, encourage everyone to support the show. I so appreciate it. <laughs>